Hello, everyone, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Madam's Cast. And what a treat we have in store for you today. I don't know why I say we. There's only me here. Well, I guess my guest counts as well. So that's a we. I'm going to go with we. Um, today, I will be talking to the very interesting and strangely located at the moment, Paul Matthew from Everleaf Drinks. I'm excited to talk to him, not only about his products, but about his story, and obviously find out the three things that he would like to change about the world of food. Remember, while you're here, you can find the Madam's Cast in the usual places. Please download rather than stream, because that helps uh, make it easier for other people to find. And these days, in these incredibly difficult uh, commercial times, if you would like to support the Madam's Cast, uh, you can now do so via Patreon for as little as a pound a month, and that will help to keep us advertisement free or the Madam's Cast advert free for the time being. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Let's get on to this episode's exciting guest and have a chat with Paul Matthew. Paul, are you there? I am, yes, thank you. Excellent. Well, be welcome to the Madam's Cast. Wriggle yourself in, get comfy. Excellent. Well done. All set down. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, this, I'm very excited about this because I love it when we have an international guest. And I'm going to claim that you're an international <laughs> guest because you're living in Iceland, which is pretty epic, right? What an amazing place that is. It is a fantastic place. I'm, I'm very lucky to be here at the moment. Have you got heating that runs off, um, runs off geothermals? Yep, all the heating, uh, 99% of the electricity in Iceland too. So that's yeah, an added bonus. That's Quite amazing. a blessed country. Well, I'm going to have I'm just going to have a little bit of Iceland chat with you, if that's all right, because I've been snorkeling in a glacial sort of between two tectonic plates in the middle of Iceland somewhere, I think. Ah, Silfra, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've done that, have you? Of course you have. I haven't. It's, oh, it's yeah. on my list, actually. Oh, we've, you we've not been here a year yet, so that's oh, on my list to do. Goodness, it was amazing. And then we got out from that and uh, some a paramedics sorted my wife out with a hypothermia. I mean, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but she, she, she did go a little bit blue. Um, we then saw salmon, giant salmon, like really big Atlantic salmon, like you wouldn't you know, expect to see these days. And they were sitting on their reds in the river. You know, the season had finished for fishing for them, but we were watching them in the river. That was pretty amazing. And pretty good tomatoes, some incredible smoked trout and bread that they seem to cook in the ground. Yes, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? Using geothermal heat to cook the bread overnight. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, there you go. I think we've done our bit for Iceland um, Travel PR Company or whoever they are out there. We've done a free job for them of, of encouraging everyone to visit Iceland. Fantastic. Wonderful seaweed too, just on the foodie side of it. Ooh, I'm, wonderful. I'm a big fan of seaweed at the moment. I'm getting getting big into seaweed. So, well, yes. <laughs> that's very interesting. Have you got Jeff Dan's new book, Edible Plants? I haven't, no, but it's one that I must. Okay, well, look, um, I, you know, I can, all, I can facilitate that, or you can buy it from the, uh, from the Amazon. Uh, I will buy it. Yeah, uh, but he definitely uh, a man. He was, he's definitely a man who's converted to seaweed, and he has some very interesting points about it as well. But I don't want to, too many spoilers for another Madam's Cast episode, so um, maybe we'll leave that there. But what are you, what are you doing with your seaweed? What, in what way are you using it in your food? I like using it in salads. Um... We, we use it in stews as well, um, but we also use it in, in Everleaf as well. So it's kind of got a, a good connection for me. Oh, and that is an expert broadcasting link that you've done there, <laughs> Matthew, to bring bring the conversation around to where we are. So um, before we dive into Everleaf drink, though, I would like uh, I would like you to sort of just give me a, a tiny potted history of you and how you've become um, uh, 
the empresario of Everleaf drinks. <laughs> okay, so there are two parts to my my backstory, I guess, if you like. Um, my father was a botanist, so growing up, I was was kind of surrounded by plants, and he was going off exploring, finding plants, and, and he worked for the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. So, so kind of plants were a big part of my life growing up, um, which was one of the reasons that led me into a career in in conservation biology. So. Um, I studied conservation and then when I left, I worked for a few different conservation charities, mainly Fauna and Flora International, which is the world's oldest conservation organization. Know that. Um, and I did a lot of that based on tree conservation, forest conservation, biology, um, and quite a bit of that in the tropics. Um, so yeah, hugely, hugely privileged to be able to visit a lot of the incredibly biodiverse and wonderful places in the world. Um, and unlike a lot of my compatriots was was interested in the plants and what what they were giving um, and how plants formed the bedrock of the ecosystems and communities we were we were working on um, but at the same time I was was bartending uh, I, I started bartending to to pay my way through the, the conservation studies and then carried on when I was working for a charity too um, and eventually the kind of the the stories I was learning about the drinks when I was traveling became really exciting to me and I had an opportunity to to open a bar so I opened my first bar 15 years ago now uh, which is the Hyde Bar on Bermsey Street in London which is still there um well done since yeah we've, we've had a couple of uh, yeah a couple of difficult moments over the past 15 years but um we've opened another couple since then as well so I've got three venues in London um and really wanted those to, to showcase some of the world's best drinks. So sourcing the, the best of each category, if you like, mm -hmm. um, and encouraging people to drink, drink better, not more necessarily. Um, and more and more, we were seeing our guests wanting um, no and low options. So drinks we could use to, to give all the flavor, but without the alcohol. Yeah. Um, and so about, what was it now, four years ago, I started developing Everleaf as as something using my knowledge of plants and um, and flavour to, to give people an, a non-alcoholic option for when they didn't want to drink or when they wanted a, a lower alcohol product. So that's how Everleaf Drinks was born. Um, and we launched the first one January three years ago. So we're almost three and a half years old now. Amazing. And so what was that flagship product? What was the first thing you came out with? Can you give us a, uh, you know, excite me about it? <laughs> well, it was just called Everleaf. Mm -hmm. So we now have three different ones based around different biomes of forest, mountain, and marine. Um, but the original Everleaf was what has become forest. And I wanted to pick out um, a lot of those bittersweet flavors that uh, we, we use to give complexity to drinks. Mm -hmm. So something that can be used as a modifier, but also tastes great on its own. Mm -hmm. So I built that out um, using botanicals I was familiar with from the world of drink, but also some that had been a part of my life growing up. So for example, the colour all comes from saffron. Um, when I was growing up, Dad was writing a book on crocus and, and crocus sativus, the, the saffron crocus, mm -hmm. was something he already he, he always had around the house. He would have little bags of saffron. It's a really emotive um, smell and flavour for me. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted that to be in there. He also wrote a book on, on iris, uh, flora of iris. So I have oris root in all the different everleafs, which is a great ingredient as is used a lot in gin. Okay. Um, really good at helping flavors work together. So orris root's a good component. Um, but then I wanted to add bitterness. So there are things like gentian root in there. Oh, nice. Um, 
it's a really kind of long process of trying out lots of different botanicals, uh, building out the kind of beginning, middle and end of the flavor profile, and then working out what things would plug the gap and, and gaps in between it and, and help it all work harmoniously. So there was kind of a stage of the development process, which was, what do I want? What are the big components of that? And then how do you, how do you work, them all, work them all in harmony? A bit like a, an ecosystem. You have all the different key players, but you need all the bits in between to make it work. Oh, sounds fantastic. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to a glass already. Now, um, I understand the botanicals. Can you... Okay, this is the thing that baffles me slightly. When you make a, a traditional alcohol-based spirit, I can understand that you distill it to put the flavours into it with the, with the botanicals inside the distiller, or you can just soak them in there. What are you using as... Um, I mean, what is the, the volume of the drink? Is it is it a plant-based product? So um, we we create a base that has texture. So one of the big things I felt was missing when I started working on non-alks was texture and mouthfeel because yeah, it's such an important thin, part of, yeah, it's such an important part of a beer, a wine, a spirit. Mm -hmm. It's an important part of a cocktail, whether you shake it or stir it, the temperature you serve it at. So texture was super important for me. Um, and I started off uh, looking back at things I knew from, from conservation. And one of those was, Salep, which is a drink that's drunk across the Middle East um, through Turkey, uh, which is made from ground up orchid tubers. Um, and they, they have something called glucomannan in, which adds um, a load of texture and body to it. So it's quite a gelatinous drink. Okay. So I experimented grinding up orchid tubers um, <laughs> from, from dad's garden. Amazing. Um, he was very kind and let me dig up a few. Um, and had some really interesting results from that. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't sustainably source orchid tubers. They're, no. they're very hard to grow. There's no commercial source of them. And I wanted to make sure everything we're sourcing is sustainable. So we had to look at alternatives to that. Um, we tried konjac, which is root of an arum from, from Asia. Oh, arum, um, that's a lily, is it? Uh, it's, well, arum lily is, is one variety. But yeah, okay. it's, it's a big tuberous root that's used as a, a starch source. Um, and that also has glucomannan, so we experimented with that for a while, but it required an awful lot of processing and heating, mm -hmm. um, so it was quite unwieldy. Um, so in the end, we've we've settled for for seaweed, um, so carrageenum from seaweed, uh -huh. uh, and also gumacacia. So gumacacia has been used a lot in the drinks industry, gum syrups, uh, literally gum syrups, mm -hmm. and it's the the exudate from the acacia trees that grow across the Sahel region of Africa. Um, and super sustainable. You can you can remove the the gum, and the tree carries on growing. It's a it's a regular annual harvest, um, and that's something that we we use to give uh, a very silky finish to leaf. So to come back to your original question, um, what's the base? So it's this textured base. Uh, yeah. We have a little bit of sugar in there as well, uh -huh. and then on top of that, we uh, we layer all the different botanicals as a kind of blend of of extracts that are all extracted in different ways to get the best possible quanti uh, qualities from the plants. Uh -huh. So some of those are distillations, some of them are steam distillations, some of them are macerations. Um, so whatever gets the best out of the plant. I, I mean, the level of product development you've gone into there is astonishing. So <laughs> uh, I will, I often develop, I, I, occasionally, should I say, asked to develop recipes for various different people, sometimes uh, with my chef hat on and sometimes, uh, sometimes not. And that, 
process can be all consuming. And I sometimes wonder if I'm going a bit too far with it. And then sometimes it run into the industry and they'll want to completely change <laughs> the process yeah. of making it anyway. Um, but that, that fine tuning for me, that sort of depth of knowledge that, you know, whether you're applying that purely from a sustainability point of view, but, but also in your case, from a sustainability point of view of your sourcing, but also from that, um, that the mouthfeel, the product based, you know, holy grail of, I want this to be amazing keep working at it until you find the right answers that level is the kind of thing that sets products apart from others and um, and that's why i'm excited uh, to talk to you um okay fantastic so um just briefly before we dive on into the next uh, into the main part of the madam's cast it's interesting uh, for me the the it feels quite sudden this emergence of better non-alcoholic drinks and but the stumbling block for me has always been, uh, well, firstly, I quite like a drink and I sort of grew up at that time, I think, when uh, it was very socially acceptable to drink. And also, uh, I've sort of stumbled into that kind of, uh, that world of, you know, when I was younger, pubs shut at a certain time and, you know, there was a limit to how you could get alcohol and, and that sort of opened up, you know, into the 24-hour licensing through my 20s. And then wine suddenly became much more available and much much lower price and much better quality and I think you know like my I'm in my sort of mid 40s I think like a lot of people my age we've probably wandered along with that and not until now really thought about it um you want to reduce your alcohol intake or you want to have a few drinks that aren't you know aren't um, aren't full of alcohol I always struggle to find a dry drink uh, you know and that was the disappointing thing now my wife makes a kombucha that she drinks with soda that's amazing she doesn't drink at all and her influence has meant that I've reduced my drinking uh, consumption significantly as well. And I, I'm really intrigued by this ability. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. For me, the thing that's always missing is that mouthfeel. So I'm, I'm excited to try your products. Looking forward to that immensely. Um, what I've do just you thought think, that <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you think is, uh, is driving this sort of, um, it, or is it a combination of things that are driving the growth in this sector? Um, it's an interesting. I'm I'm the same age as you. Uh, grew up in in an era where you drank fast and hard yeah. because the bar was going to close. Um, and in hindsight, it was quite irresponsible in how I drank, but also as a bartender, how I served people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the fact that that's changing now. And it's it's almost a requirement of any decent venue to have great non-alcoholic options now and that's really only happened in the last few years um why has it happened i think there's been a a huge change in people's approach to food i mean the the rise of the foodie and people's connection to to their food is changing fast and i think drinking has been part of that as well um you certainly shouldn't have to order a uh, a very sweet cola or a fruit juice when you're having your um, very carefully sourced meal at a top restaurant so uh-huh. there needs to be an option there um, I think there's been a huge rise in, in mindfulness as well the last few years Covid as well helped us think a little bit more about our health and we certainly saw from our sales that the the first few weeks of Covid were a massive spike in alcohol sales for people drinking at home yeah. and then there was a quick realisation that uh, actually maybe uh, <laughs> it looks like we're going to be locked down for a while drinking every night isn't perhaps the most sustainable thing we can do but we want to kind of mark that occasion we want to mark the end of the day with a drink we want to divide work and play time or we want to 
um, sit back and relax. What can we what can we use that isn't necessarily alcohol? Yeah, there's something quite ritualistic about the consumption of a potion, isn't there? To kind of mark the move from one one segment of your you hugely, know, it's yeah. like the act of cooking, isn't it? And mm. if you enjoy cooking, it's it's the ritual that is almost better than the food itself at the end because the food is like the the marker at the end of the process of cooking. And and I love cooking, and for me that pouring a drink to have while you're cooking and the process of laying things out and preparing it is is almost more enjoyable than the the end bit of, of eating it and tidying up it's, yeah yeah um, it's the same with the drink i think the process of the ritual of of making that is is so important um, and that's why with everleaf um, serving in a spritz which is what we recommend there is the the pour your measure out and it pours beautifully with all this texture um, you add the ice, you add the garnish, and you top with that that sparkling. We recommend light tonic or soda or something like that, and you you get all this effervescence coming off, and you you almost relax in the process of making it. I think it's a it's a very kind of um, emotive action. Amazing, amazing. Well, not only do I am I desperate to dash out and try all three of these variations now, I shall get them ordered up this afternoon. But I feel like I want shares in the company. I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm talking to you about this incredibly passionate, well thought out products, and and I'm, I'd like to talk about it forever. But we have to dive in to the rest of the Madam's Cast. Um, otherwise, we're going to run out of time. I'm going to sort of blether away at you, and, and you're going to come up with more interesting things, and that's going to lead me down further garden paths, and we won't get to where we need to be. So um, without further ado, are you ready to change three things about the world of food? I am, yes. Okay, excellent. So we're, with, with no fancy sound effects or anything like that, we're going to move through into an alternate reality where the world is much more malleable than it is uh, here, and certainly things can be changed instantly by the... Uh, by the mere expression or a wave of your hand. So what is the first thing in this bold new world that you would like to change about the world of food? Um, it, it's a bit uh, ethereal, if you like, but our connection to it, <laughs> I, I would like everybody to know what their food looks like when it grows um, and understand it a little bit more. So I feel that we're so used to buying things in in cans or processed or ready chopped or um, ready dissected uh, but some of the plants i talk about are amazing where they grow I mean, if you take take saffron for example and that crocus pushing up out of the ground um, flowering just before the winter uh, what it does overnight the history of people's use of saffron the, the use of dyeing robes the medicinal uses in times past of saffron and the fact it has to be harvested by hand and it's this one part of the flower and what happens to the rest of the flower. Um, and that's just one kind of ingredient. I feel like um, you can talk about a lot of things that we eat and people have no idea where they come from or what they look like or how they yeah. grow. Yeah. Uh, and I would love people to, to be more connected to their food and understand some of that incredible wealth of knowledge. Um, I mean, vanilla, for example, where vanilla would naturally grow in, in rainforests in Brazil, um, how it hangs off a tree and what pollinates it, um, very specific species of bee, uh, all the kind of different bits of it, the fact that that fruit has to be then fermented to get the flavours out that we associate with vanilla. And it's not a tub, a plastic tub of beige coloured no, ice cream that you pick up in the supermarket, all the different things that have gone into that, that plant. Um, so yeah, I, that's what I would love to people to understand 
where it's come from and I would hope value it a little bit more. Yeah, well, I think the two go hand in hand, don't they? Um, if you if you do understand the work involved and you do understand, uh, you know, the the processes, uh, you know, both natural and then, you know, sort of man, man added, if you like, um, post harvest to to get these products, then you just begin to appreciate them a little bit more automatically. Um, but I mean, how, I mean, you know, the $9 million question there is, what's your idea? How do you get, how do we, how do we change? Now I know we're in the magical world and you can just change that. That's fine. But if we step back into the other world, how would you go about changing um, or improving people's uh, connection to, to their food? And, you know, in what way would you start? It's too big a question to find all the answers to, but give me an example of how you would like to start that process. Yeah, I think it is happening to agree. I mean, chefs talk a lot more about um, the sourcing of things and, and even kind of the, the naming of farms and producers of where their food is coming from is a hugely important thing that we've seen develop over the last 10, 15 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for marketing to be more honest, I think would be one way that could happen mm-hmm. to, to talk about the ingredients going into something rather than the the concept of the product and how best to sell it. Um, I, I would love to see more programs that look at the sourcing of our food and where it comes from as well. Um, I, I love some of the the Instagram accounts that talk about this. So I, mean, I love like Botany Geeks um, shares as well. So the sort of things he talks about and diving into the world of plants and the, the stories behind them. So yeah, just a, a general realization of what's out there and yeah um, yeah well there we go I, I, yeah i mean what could be more rewarding than being more closely connected to your food and understanding the environment from which it comes and then you know i think from that understanding it grows its own kind of respectfulness um which which might help us to deal with some other problems I, yeah i mean ethereal you say but but absolutely brilliant i think it, it's an umbrella that covers a lot of for me, what are some of the larger issues within uh, or things that I would like to see improved in the world of food? And I think that's a really good way of, of encapsulating some of them without it getting too sort of too complicated. Um, thank you very much. I'm enjoying point one. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't think of anything, um, anything bad to say about it whatsoever. Um, so, <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> that's a good place for us to be. Change and understand the connections to food. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm definitely having that. There is something very, uh, to go back to what you were saying earlier, there's something quite mindful about the process of actually cooking. And I'm, for me, I've always felt that actually cooking is the key. But maybe just understanding where, the, where those ingredients have come from is, is, the, is the hook for other people. Um, and I think that's what it's about, is finding different, you know, different things that will be interesting to different groups of people and using that to sort of uh, connect that journey together. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, well, I mean, point number one, succinct, beautifully delivered, and 100% in the bank. So unless there's anything you'd like to add to point number one, I'm very excited <laughs> to hear what point number two may be. Point number two, uh, sources. Oh, okay, hang on. <laughs> S-O-U-R-C-E-S or? S-A-U. S-A-U, okay. Here we go. Come from sourcing to sourcing. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I love, a, I love a pun. I think it's to do with my age. 
and the fact that I'm a yes. father. Um, Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> not go down that route. <laughs> a, joke's, a joke's no good unless you have to explain it at least three times. Uh, yes. <clears throat> okay. And still stony-faced children at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so embarrassing. Okay. Yes. Um, sources. Um, what exactly about sources is upsetting well, you? It does, it does link a little bit to my children, I guess, but I'm guilty of it too. And, and that is just adulterating all the food that goes onto the plate with bucket loads of sauces, whether that's ketchup or mayonnaise or pickle or mustard. Um, they have their place, but to be honest, they're becoming far too prevalent in this household. And, and I would like to cut back on our sauce use. Mm-hmm. I would love the food to be delicious and have all the quanti- all the qualities that it needs without us needing to to dose it with what is essentially a lot more sugar and salt every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think you know certainly certainly the whole sugar and salt trick is a good one. Um, sugar and vinegar. I mean, vinegar and 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 sugar together. Anything sweet and acidic cooked together. You know, it brings on that umami, and then if you load that up with salt as well, then happy days. Um, it, it's that quick flavour hit, though, isn't it? And actually, you sort of miss a lot of the subtlety if you go for that. I think a good way around that is to include something a little bit sweet and spicy um, in the dish. So- yes, absolutely. Well, you're you're the chef, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think p- picking the right things to. Uh, accentuate the qualities that a dish already has and incorporating those in it. And I'm by no means here criticising the, the well-made sauces that are designed to go with a specific dish. What I'm, what <laughs> I'm against is the, the blanket application of coloured, fatty, sugary, sugary, salty things to every dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, I'm tempted to try and argue with you a little bit. So um, if, you know, you know, let's say I've got a reluctant uh, child who's not that keen on, I don't know, peas and a little bit of mayo, you know, or a little bit. I mean, not my trick is a bit of garlic butter, actually, cook them oh, in a nice. bit of garlic butter. But if you have a, if you've got a fussy child and you want to get it to eat more of its vegetables or them to eat more of their vegetables rather than it, um, <laughs> and there are other ways of encouraging them, but sometimes a quick fix at supper time is what you need, then the ketchup bottle might just be the answer, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm totally guilty of this as well. And I think this is the, the theoretical world where we can change things at will. Yeah, um, yeah, I think one of the problems we have is that we've gone down that route too many times and now the children are used to having a lot of um, salty, sweet things added to their food. And it's difficult to go back once you've gone down that route. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, totally, totally get you on that one. Um, and uh, certainly, certainly the ketchup and the mayonnaise in this household do tend to be automatically removed from the fridge at, at supper times. So I've taken to automatically putting them back in again uh, so that they have to be asked for uh, like some kind oh, of dark, col- some sort of dark condiment overlord. Like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, There's yeah, a, yeah, They have to do something in order to earn the sauce, perhaps. Well, later. yeah, I think I do think something like that might have to happen at some point. Um, you know, but but there we go. Maybe maybe the truth of the fact is uh, the matter in hand is that my cooking is no good and it's very bland and they need these things to make, <laughs> make it more sure better. that is not the case um, <laughs> well i really hope not <laughs> but i suppose it's possible um yeah I mean, what, the one thing i have found is if you get them involved in the cooking then if they flavor the food themselves they feel less inclined to adulterate it at the end mm. 
Mm. Allowing your children to be involved with cooking is a really important one. I think we tend to sort of, or certainly what I tend to do is think, oh, I'm going to make something with the children and I'll pick something that I think the children want to make and I'll make it with them. And actually that's foolhardy because it's self-defeating. I want them to be involved with the cooking process of what we're making. And so I try now to let them do stuff, even if I think ah, actually it'd be quicker if I do it or it's going to be a pain because I've got that responsibility for them to know how to cook an egg, roast a piece of potato, whatever it is. Um, but also I, I need to let them do it. And I'm uh, you know, very difficult as a chef to allow other people to do stuff. You tend to be sort of like, no, I'll do it. Leave it to me. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but the thing that I really want to get to with this is like, where has ketchup come from, right? Because ketchup would have been invented as a way of preserving a tomato harvest. And yet we now probably in a situation where ketchup is consuming more tomatoes than were initially wasted. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, that does come back to our connection to ingredients, doesn't it? And, um, and actually you've done a fantastic segue for my third one. If you'd like to go down that route. Oh, I would, but before we dive into the third one, I have to know ketchup or brown sauce. I'll catch up myself. Okay, okay. Catch up over brown sauce. I'm going to have to cut like you off judged there. now. conversation's yes. over. <laughs> no, not at all, um, not at all. Well, let's go back to the... I mean, I'm excited to hear about point number three. Um, well, it is a bit linked to that, that first one, connection, I'm afraid. So I'm kind of going, going in a loop on myself. But it's, worry, um, it's seasonality. Oh, yeah. Am I allowed seasonality? Of course you are. It comes up all the time. And, and I don't yeah. think we can discuss it too much, to be honest. Um, so yes, grounded covered a lot of times, I'm sure, but um, I don't want to have everything all year round from all over the world. I want to feel more connected to what's going on outside the window. I want to have things when they're in season um, and I want them to not have to travel so many miles to get to me. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I also think there is something very bland about eating everything all the time it sort of reduces your interest in, in what you're eating. When you get to look forward to stuff for a large segment of the year, you know, yeah. I think that improves. I don't know whether it's just the anticipation or when you eat stuff in season, it tastes better. Potentially a combination of the two. What do you think? Absolutely. I think um, when it doesn't have to travel so far and, and doesn't have to be picked when it's underripe so that it ripens on a journey or is artificially ripened, Coincidentally, actually, um, Iceland ripens a lot of the world's bananas using geothermal energy. That's um, an that's interesting takeaway from Iceland. Does it? Well, that's fantastic. Oh, I'm interested. Yeah. I'm very interested in that. Um, um, okay. And yeah. they also have, they've got their own... They've got, I was amazed by the quality of the tomatoes in Iceland. Yes. Yeah, the tomatoes are very good. Um, it's, it's a bizarre one. I mean, the tomato farms are amazing to visit and the, the scale that they produce on and the, the way they do it with... Um, with biological pest control and geothermal energy and, and geothermal electrical electrical power for the the lights there, it's, um, yeah, astonishing to see what you can do when when put to it. Because Iceland is is faced with challenges when it comes to growing fresh fruit and vegetables. Yeah. Um, and by saying seasonality, I'm kind of uh, reducing my options to fermented foods for much of the year in Iceland. <laughs> lichen and fermented foods. Lichen, seaweed and stuff that's been fermented for a very long time. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting sustainable um, seasonal harvests in Iceland, though. I mean, do they have? Uh, I, I, uh, this is going to be a dangerous subject to discuss, but you know, people can fast forward. Um, <laughs> I, I quite where it's part of the culture and part of the farming, local farming tradition, and it's done sustainably in a high welfare way. Like the same rule I apply to all other meat that I eat, and I don't know if you're a meat eater or not, um, I, I quite enjoy a bit of horse meat, and that's a big thing in Iceland, isn't it? It is, yeah. I'm I'm an occasional meat eater. Uh-huh. Um, and like I said with the kind of connection to it, I kind of feel like you you should be prepared to to kill what you eat, or you should be prepared to at least appreciate where that meat's come from and and value the fact that something's died in order to put it on your plate and it shouldn't come in a styrofoam pack with cling film over the top and be totally disconnected um and the horse thing is is a really interesting one in iceland because the horse is such a part of culture here Mm. um and it, it does seem to kind of nod to that circularity of of using everything and uh, appreciating your your ingredients and sourcing what you can um so yeah, I totally understand why it's part of the culture here. It's not not something I personally um, seek out. But... No, no, no. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. Um, I'd love to know what other seasonal foods are available in Iceland. I know I'm, I realise that we might be drifting slightly into too much fine detail here, but I'm I'm, I'm intrigued uh, <laughs> in in a way. I mean, do, do, are you a fish eater? Do you eat much fish? Yeah, I, I eat a fair bit of fish when when I kind of know where it's come from again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, obviously the fish here can be incredible and um, huge cod and huge salmon. Um, less seafood than I expected, actually, in terms of shellfish and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the the sea does become very deep very quickly, so it does change what's available here. Sure uh, does. But sure then does. You, you have all the weird and wonderful here too, like fermented shark, um, which is... A, a product again of uh, seasonality and where things are available and when things are available. Yeah, I've experienced the aroma of uh, a fermented shark, and I have to say, there are certain processes from the past <laughs> that perhaps the modern palate can live without. Uh, I don't want to. Indeed, I mean, essentially, uric acid and ammonia and mm. <laughs> things like that. Mm. Yes, mm. not not something you would choose to eat necessarily. No, I mean, an air dried or pickled herring any day of the week, no drama, uh, quite like that. Uh, they, uh, I, I think there's a, a habit in Iceland of air drying the mutton as well, which uh, they certainly do it on the Faroe Islands and I, I think they yep. do it in Iceland as well. Air drying and smoking, of course. Um, well, interestingly, I, I was at a, a whiskey distillery here the other day and obviously you have the, the smoked whiskies of, of Isla. Mm-hmm. Um, smoked using peat and there isn't much peat on Iceland not, because not sustainable people we don't like peat use in that way no no we don't um, but also not much in Iceland mm-hmm. so what do they well, use it's hardly any for? soil in Iceland is it exactly yeah it hasn't had the time to form peat um, and there isn't enough growth to generate peat that easily mm-hmm. um, but sheep dung on the other hand is is readily readily available and um, traditionally the, the sheep were brought in over winter into the home and um, by the end of a few years the floor would have risen in the home because mm-hmm. of the compacted sheep droppings um, and those would be cut out and and dried outside and then used as fuel so we have a sheep dung smoked whiskey here 
that's fascinating. I'm quite, I, I live in Speyside in Scotland, and so I'm surrounded by distilleries, not necessarily of the smoky variety, but I find that's quite interesting. Is there an element of the farmyard about the, about the whiskey? I'm presuming they've fine-tuned it, and that's not the case. It's, it's more the smoke than the farmyard, I think. It's, it's very, very peaty in its quality. Really very Amazing. nice. Amazing. A sort of sustainable self-made peat. I mean, presumably you can then cook the sheep over a fire made of its own dung. Uh, yeah, at Christmas you have twice smoked sheep as one of the traditional uh, traditional dishes. Yeah, taking seasonality to its ultimate extreme. You have yeah. to save the harvest, uh, it, you know, from a time of abundance in some way, um, much in the same way as you preserve tomatoes by making ketchup, which hoists us by our own petard for point number two, but <laughs> never mind. Um, okay, well, you know, I... There's nothing to argue with you or, or really discuss further about seasonality. It makes everything better. Um, you know, when you start eating, I mean, it's an overused example uh, in the United Kingdom, but if you start eating a strawberry in December, you, you know, you're not doing anyone any favours, really. And you're no. not having a good strawberry experience, that's for sure. So it seems like a complete waste of time. And I'm not actually sure people want to do it. I think it's purely that they're available and that they're marketed as a luxury goods scenario that makes people sort of think they want them I think it's fairly unconscious that decision to eat a and also product. the way the way we shop these days and um shopping online or just having your your regular shopping list it's like oh well, i'm getting strawberries because strawberries are on my list it's not there's no kind of thought process necessarily yeah. but we always get strawberries and on thursday we have strawberries for pudding and the kids take strawberries in their lunch boxes therefore I need strawberries rather than a, a thinking oh a strawberries in season well these taste good um, yeah 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 you're right you're right so with um, all of those I think the the the, pro, the the sources the the connection to our food and the seasonality all come back to giving ourselves a better experience of, of flavor and a better um, a better food experience as well as being a little bit more mindful about the environment and, and how we ship things around Okay, I'm going to sum up seasonality using the strawberry analogy. Rather than rather than rubbish strawberries in the winter, give me good strawberry jam, uh, and I think that will that will nicely uh, illustrate the point for us. Okay, um, wow. I mean, you know, I'd like to stay here. This world has improved dramatically, um, <laughs> although I'm slightly disappointed uh, that the brown sauce uh, camp is uh, is less populated than I thought. But never mind. We'll I'll attempt to educate that. myself. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I believe you. Um, all right, brilliant. So uh, I, thank you very much for those points. We'll, we'll, we'll return now to the ordinary world where hopefully all of these are sort of in some way underway. I, I feel encouraged of late uh, that maybe that sort of, um, that ship of uncertain plundering is sort of turning slightly and, and people becoming more aware. I mean, I'm aware that I sort of shout into an echo chamber to some extent I've been involved with. Um, the sustainability discussion and localism and all of that stuff for quite a long time now. And you've, I certainly for a long time felt like it was getting nowhere at all. Uh, not that I'm actively doing it, but other people sort of telling their stories and, and helping them. Um, I felt like we were getting nowhere. But certainly in the last few years, I feel like if that ship's not turned around, it's beginning to go a couple of degrees off course. Uh, and hopefully we're sailing back towards a more seasonal based uh, attitude to our food um, yeah that's it I feels like anyway. we've been talking about it a lot and i think if we're seeing a a slight change 
probably the big picture is there's been a big change. We just have a lot further to go. Mm, mm, I agree. I agree. And actually, um, there is a lot of change afoot. I mean, to bring it back to you, for example, we've got this change in people's attitude towards drinking. That's that's definitely interesting because it's much more conscious decision. It's not an unconscious thing. That's a conscious thing. And I think that's that for me is really interesting because that, you know, once you've made one conscious decision to change something about your diet, you can make another one. Right. And it becomes yeah. a habit to then start to examine your choices around your consumption. Um, hopefully, you know, I, I'm not necessarily that big a fan of all of the angles related to this neo veganism wave that's going on. But again, in and of itself, people thinking more about their meat consumption, uh, depending on the facts they're basing that final decision upon, it's up to them. But the fact that people are considering that to a greater degree, I find very interesting. Um, the birth of uh, this sort of um, uh, flexitarianism, this sort of ethicitarian kind of thought process uh, that's, that some people are sort of um, uh, signing up to. I think that's really, really indicative of this final, you know, finally we're making, or, or some people that have gone before and some people that are coming to the future as well as the people that are working hard now are giving us this sort of change in attitude towards the assumption that our food is endless, available and cheap. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting. I think you need um, you need some people to take it to an extreme in order to draw everybody along the, the journey a little bit further as well, don't you? Yeah. So you, yeah. you need some celebrities talking about complete alcohol abstinence and how awful alcohol is to, to make a lot of regular people reconsider quite how much they drink and maybe reduce a little bit um, just as you you have some very vocal vegans that maybe make people think a little bit twice about quite how much meat they have or what meat they should choose um, mm -hmm. yeah i agree i agree <coughs> oh excuse me i had a little um, frog in my throat there okay brilliant so that's kind of the meat on the bones uh, of the Madam's cast there, are beautifully navigated by you. I have to say, no hand-wringing, no nonsense, just some great, clear answers and some sharing of your thoughts. I'm delighted to hear them. Uh, I'm also fascinated to, to learn about your product. I think the, the, the level of thought going into that sounds astonishing, um, and I'm, I'm very interested to try it. As I mentioned, I'm reducing my alcohol content a little bit, uh, personally, uh, and actually, I miss that, I miss that drink so i think it's a it's a good it's a really no, that's good exactly what what we're trying to do we're not telling people not to drink we're just saying if you want to moderate but you still want to have all the flavor and to enjoy that moment and to really um really think about what you're what you're drinking then everleaf's there um, if you want to carry on having a glass of wine that's absolutely fine maybe every now and again just just have an everleaf spritz instead um, well i very much do both so uh, what i've yeah. found is um i will have a few alcohol-free beers in the fridge and i'll have some alcoholic beers in the fridge as well and then i'll do the same uh, with this with the spirit shelf if you like and and yep. and i will if we're having a celebration or if it's an evening at the weekend or i fancy a drink i might well start with a, with a, an alcohol-based drink and then i might have a non-alcohol-based drink and i think that helps me make better decisions as the evening progresses so that i'm more useful the next day so oh, i think absolutely. you know even right down to the same period of time those choices are not mutually exclusive and I, I really like that about it yeah absolutely I mean I, I do it the other way around I start with a non-alcoholic one so 
kind of quench my thirst because I normally drink the first one too quickly. <laughs> or maybe that's where I'm going <laughs> wrong. That I can <laughs> savor the, the next one. But yeah, Excellent. I'm exactly well, the same. I think the days of, I mean, when I was a young chef in London, we used to get something that it was quite entertaining. They used to call it a split shift. You basically got a couple of hours off in the afternoon. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do at three o'clock in the afternoon in central London? Uh, you know, I suppose these days people probably go to the gym or go for a run or or have a coffee <laughs> or whatever. But certainly we all just piled out the door straight into the pub, three, three or four pints of high strength lager, please. Um, and then back to work again. I mean, not only dangerous and bad practice uh, in the workplace, but also very, very bad for us. Uh, as people so um, oh, it's the same behind the bar too for sure oh god yeah don't you worry my friend I've got a few uh, <laughs> barman friends from London yeah. town I, I remember very well what it's like fortunately um, before the days of, of constant social media what a relief yes I remember with some alarm the first person that showed me their camera on their phone i remember <laughs> oh my god <laughs> this is yeah. this is a bad idea um as if it's not bad enough that you can accidentally text someone after three o'clock in the morning we're now going to have a photo to prove the state we were in okay so you've got three little tasks left to perform before we boot you off the madam's cast if that's okay with you yep um okay paul i would like you to choose a desert island food related book a drink to drink while you're perusing it now you might have an idea about what that might be and <laughs> and also nominate somebody else to come and have this chat on the madam's cast now they don't have to come it's not a, an enforced situation uh it's just a bit of fun if they'd like to come then we're very very welcome to do so and we'll endeavor to get in touch with them but it's just you know we like to find connections to encourage conversation to continue right so first up Something to read. Okay, book number one. Hit me. Um, well, am I allowed a flora of the of the area I'm in? You totally are. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, what would be more useful? Um, well, it would be useful. It would be fun. It would be interesting. And there's generally so much detail in a flora that I feel like it would keep me occupied for a long time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. So you're going to be able to identify all the plants around you. And that's going to help you uh, in your in your little kitchen yeah. on the beach there. That's for sure. When yeah. I tell people I um I like plants and I'm really interested in all this stuff and I know a bit about this, that, and the other, um, they'll inevitably point at something and say, "What's that?" Then <laughs> <laughs> it's slightly frustrating because uh, I'm not a botanist. I can't tell you everything that's out there. And yeah. if I'm yeah. in a different country, I certainly can't. And I've I've done this many times before as a conservation biologist. You, you turn up somewhere and you walk into the forest and there's so much there and there are so many plants and you just desperately want to know what they all are and how they're all related and how they interconnect. So, yes, a flora to help me. Yeah, people do it to me all the time. I take small groups out uh, foraging from a sort of yeah. purely purely from a, um, a flavour perspective, from a useful plant perspective. And I always start with the chat, look, I'm not a botanist. Okay? But it doesn't matter. Within five minutes, someone's saying, what's this? What's that? <laughs> And uh, and it's like, well, it's definitely carrot family. Uh, I'll give you unbelief for your unbelief. For that's that's about it as far as I'm prepared to commit on that particular. Yeah, one. my dad's brilliant at it. And oh, he sounds like someone I'd like to be but... for sure. He sounds very yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, and I, but I have to take you to task. Actually, hold on, I've made a note here. Uh, somewhere around here, you said that the plants are the basis of all our soils and life and everything. Well, I have to say that I think you'd be a bit stuck without fungus. Oh, very true. Very, very, very true. 
Okay, but I'm just being smug about that. Hugely right? unknown, really, as well. There's so much we still need to learn about about fungi, and um, really hugely fascinating from how they communicate and how they allow other plants to communicate, and um, the thing, the, the chemicals they can produce in order to to digest things, but also to to send signals and to ward off predators. And yeah, hugely fascinating. I'd love to know more about fungi. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, we've only got one brain and a limited amount of time for reading, haven't we? But, um, you know, the hive mind is working hard on that. Okay, so the book, we've got a flora of the local area. I like that. I like that a lot. So what are you going to drink? What are you going to sip at while you're perusing the flora for this general area? I wonder. Well, I feel like an Everleaf Spritz would be the, the answer I should give. Um, and, and I would love to do that. And one thing I'm very pleased about is after three and a half years, uh, I'm still really enjoying it. And I've not got fed up with all the tastings that I do yeah. with people regularly. Um, and I think having all those different plants in there means that each sip you do potentially taste something different or depending on your mood and the time of day or what is going on around you and what other smells are in the room, you might perceive it in a different way. Yeah, there's um, a lot to be said for that. I'm sort of... I'm a bit of a skeptic of that sort of cutting edge restaurant environment where they, you know, you put dark glasses on you and some headphones and make you smell something. But it, I get what they're getting at because there yeah. definitely is a, you do definitely experience things differently in different environments and your sense of smell will be heightened by an absence of light and all of those things. I, I, I get where they're going with it. It's like you were saying earlier, you need the, the sort of extremists, if you like, to kind of, encourage yes. tampering in a, in a perhaps slightly less avant-garde way further down the line i find it fascinating tasting everleaf with with different people and what people pick out of it um, so some people if you're familiar with the taste of saffron you'll find a lot of saffron in forest and mm-hmm. um, so whenever i taste in spain or, or with spanish people or people that cook a lot of spanish food they'll really pick out on the saffron um, other people will really pick up on the on the vanilla that we use other people who are sensitive to bitterness will, will get overwhelmed by the gentian or, or love the gentian. So, yeah, it's all these different things that, that will come out. Um, failing that coconut water. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, obviously we're going for a proper desert island here uh, with, yeah. with actual coconuts. Now, I'm going to have to ask you a botany question that I don't know if you're going to be able to answer or oh, not. No. You might have to quickly email your dad. Um, what sort of plant is a coconut palm? It's not a tree, is it? Well, it's a palm. It's yeah. a palm. It's just as simple as that. It's genus. It's a palm. Right. Okay. That's not that Cocos nisipera, is it? Um, oh, well, I don't know. But good use of uh, taxonomical name well, there. I like I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. No, well, um, don't guess away, my friend. <laughs> I, I wrote a story about a coconut when I was uh, at school. I still remember it. It was the journey of the coconut because the, the coconut palms grow out over the water. So they drop their coconuts into the sea and they can float and wind up on a beach somewhere else. I, I wrote a story about the journey of this coconut around the world and how it washed up in different places. <laughs> it's oh, still well, something I remember whenever we talk coconuts. But yeah. do, you write, do you write anything now? Uh, I love writing and I don't have enough time to write. I don't give myself enough time to write. Yeah, There's always time. Good. It's just how you apportion it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, uh, procrastination. Ninety percent procrastination. That's me. Um, mm, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I look forward to I look forward to being in the future and able to say, "Oh, right, the book I'm going to take with me is Paul <laughs> Matthews, The Story of Floating Seeds: um, A um, Biology of Plants and How They Traverse the Ocean." That's I'm in my dad's shadow, though he's written over twenty, so I feel like I, I'm letting the side down by not having written one yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
retirement plan, maybe. <laughs> Just ease up a bit, Dad, will you? You're putting yeah. the rest of us to shame. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Too much pressure. Um, all right. So who would you nominate then to come on the Madam's Cast in the future? So um, there's a, a very well-known old cocktail book. It isn't really a cocktail book. It's more a, a journey through drinks um, called The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks by David Embry. And David Embry was one of these chaps that kind of travelled around the world drinking everywhere and um, recounting the stories of, of those drinks and where he drank them um, and kind of put them into a, into a recipe book, but it's more a series of anecdotes. And uh -huh. it's, it's a wonderful journey through the world of drinks. Um, and I think it'd be wonderful to get his kind of take on it in person. Wow, I was not expecting that. I mean, I wasn't expecting anything, but that's definitely uh, <laughs> not what I was expecting. Oh, that's fascinating. David Embry. David, the art David of mixing Embry. Drinks. Yeah. Okay. Fine art of mixing drinks. Fine Excuse art. me, my voice is going now. That's okay. Don't worry. I've been making you talk for uh, an alarming 52 minutes now. So I think it's entirely, <laughs> entirely my fault and I'll accept the blame. Um, I've clearly enjoyed it though. Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope so, Paul. It's been lovely to have you on, Paul Matthew of, Emberle uh, of Everleaf Drinks. Now, before you do go, can you give us the, um, the digital handbags, please? How do we find out more about you? Where do we find your products? Uh, are you on Instagram? Well, actually, I know you're on Instagram because I noticed you there this morning. Um, <laughs> give, us a, give us a few little places we can check you out and give us the name of all three bars in case anyone listening wants to go and have a superb drink while they're in town. Oh, okay, right, from the top. Um, so, <clears throat> hang on a second. I'm just That's trying right, to get man. my voice back. That's fine, don't worry. I, I like this bit. This is where I get to be uh, uh, like, okay, what's happening with Paul? Is he, is, he have, is he mixing up a drink now? Is he having a little shake-up? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, yes, there we go. <laughs> Getting it ready. It is Friday, after all, when we're talking. Um, right, so Everleaf. We have three different flavours of Everleaf. Uh, Everleaf Forest, Everleaf Mountain, and Everleaf Marine. Um, each one uses botanicals from those environments, but also tries to kind of take you on a journey through them. So forest, we have you walking into a forest and all the, the kind of floral aromatics at the top through to the, the bittersweet earthy things on the, on the ground. Um, mountain, we have you going up a mountain, starting off in a, a cherry blossom valley with all those cherry blossom aromatics. Um, and as you climb up the mountain, we've, we've got things like alpine strawberry and rosehip coming in near the top. A little bit of wormwood for bitterness. So quite vermouthy in character, um, but with all those kind of cherry blossom florals. And then finally, we have marine, which um, is a journey through swimming through a kelp forest and discovering all those, those seaweeds. You use kelp and dulse in there. Um, but then as you lie back on the beach afterwards, you've got... Uh, You've got olive leaf and bergamot and thyme and all those kind of aromatic things that grow by the sea in the Mediterranean. So those are the three products. Um, they are available uh, through our website where you can find out more about Everleaf. That's everleafdrinks.com. We're available in Marks and Spencers, Amazon, lots of other online retailers and ooh, getting on for close to a thousand different bars and restaurants around the UK as well now, which is Brilliant. really exciting. Um, I'm... Everleaf Paul on Instagram. Please drop me a line if you have any more questions. And the bars are the Hyde Bar on Bermsey Street in London, uh, and then the Arbitrager and Demon Wise and Partners in the City of London. Um, and the Arbitrager and the Hyde focus on on London-made ingredients. So we source from London's breweries and distilleries and wineries, 
um, to really kind of champion local in London. Brilliant, brilliant. Loving all of that and looking forward. I've now followed you on Instagram. I don't know if that means anything, but I'm looking it means a lot. To- Thank you. No, no, you're welcome. No, um, I'm looking forward to catching up and keeping an eye on what's going on with you. The ever-expanding world of connections that the Madam's Cast is creating is a, is a glorious place. Um, one last flippancy before you leave, um, just because I'm a little bit uh, interested. Flair or no flair in your bar? Oh, well, in, in my particular bars, no flair. But there's a time and a place for everything, just as there's a teppanyaki grill versus fine dining versus a burger in a pub <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a time and a place for everything yeah the time and place for flair bartending is in a darkened room when there's no one there to watch it anyway <laughs> uh, that's just my opinion right so um <clears throat> thank you very very much paul matthew for joining the madam's cast uh, you will hear undoubtedly up and down the country a sporadic round of applause from single people in their headphone dwelling world as you go through the following months of your life um, enjoy iceland thanks very much for taking part stay safe be well look after yourself it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much all the best bye, bye.